Hello, students. My name is Mike Estefan, and I thank you for joining me today on this month's Deep Dive episode on the EM Clerkship Podcast. Today's episode is going to be a quick deep dive into the ED management of ectopic pregnancy and a few other pregnancy-related topics. Before we begin, just a quick word from our sponsors over at Pearson Rabbits. Pearson Rabbits Insurance is my personal disability insurance broker. I cannot emphasize the importance of getting own occupation disability insurance while you are a resident. It is so important. There are so many discounts to be had compared to obtaining this while you're in attending. The underwriting process can take some time, so please don't wait until it's too late. Get this done while you are young and healthy before significant coverage restrictions get added to your policy. Check out Pearson Rabbits at www.pearsonrabbits.com and schedule an appointment for consultation. Don't forget to mention EM Clerkship. Now, back to the episode. Last week we had our first OB case. There was a lot to unpack. Let's start by talking about ectopic pregnancy, and in doing so, we will cover a couple other pregnancy-related pearls as well. So, about 2% of all pregnancies in the U.S. are ectopic pregnancies, and ectopic pregnancy is the leading cause of first trimester mortality in pregnant individuals. The biggest risk factor for an ectopic pregnancy is history of prior ectopic pregnancies. However, previous GYN surgery, history of a sexually transmitted infection or pelvic inflammatory disease, cigarette smoking, and use of assisted reproductive technologies such as IVF or hormonal therapy also increase the risk of developing an ectopic pregnancy. So patients who have an ectopic pregnancy can present in many different ways. On one end of the spectrum, patients can present totally asymptomatic. Maybe they just missed their period and is only in the ED for a pregnancy test. On the other end of the spectrum, these patients can present after rupture with severe abdominal pain and unstable vital signs. I wish I could give you guys a one-size-fits-all to the workup and management of these patients, but I just don't practice like that, and I don't think anyone does. So my approach totally differs depending on how they are presenting. So for the purposes of this episode, I'm going to try to break down my initial approach to the workup of three different presentations. The nonspecific abdominal pain in somebody of childbearing age, the stable vaginal bleeding in somebody of childbearing age, or the unstable abdominal pain in somebody of childbearing age. Again, in all of these cases, we are assuming that the patient is capable of bearing children. Let's start with the patient presenting with nonspecific abdominal pain. Sometimes, ectopic pregnancies are found incidentally, as the initial chief complaint is simply abdominal pain without any vaginal bleeding and the pregnancy status is unknown. This is what happened in this month's episode. And here, I am doing pretty much exactly what Maddie did, usually just starting with some abdominal labs, a urinalysis, and a pregnancy test, and then pivoting as needed as more data becomes available. I typically make the decision about imaging based on my physical exam and the location of their symptoms. There should be no revelations here. We see this patient literally on every single shift, and this month's case is a good example of how this should pan out. Now, let's take the second example, patient presenting with vaginal bleeding, but they're stable and well-appearing. I tend to start with a CBC, a BMP, a serum quantitative beta-HCG, 
as well as a urine pregnancy test, a urinalysis, and RH typing. And yes, I usually order both a serum quantitative beta HCG as well as a urine pregnancy test simultaneously. If you work in the ED, you know exactly why. It can take hours to get a urine sample, and this result can totally pivot the direction of our workup. I swear, if time to urine was a tracked ED metric, kind of like how time to TPA or door to balloon time is, our dock to disposition times would literally be cut in half. Delays in obtaining urine samples are probably my biggest pet peeve as a new attending. I could go on and on about this, but... That's why I obtain the urine as well as the serum. And lastly, but most importantly, the third type of clinical scenario. That is a patient who is capable of bearing children, who's complaining of severe abdominal pain or vaginal bleeding, and is either hemodynamically unstable or quite toxic appearing with a concerning physical exam. Now, this is a ruptured ectopic pregnancy until proven otherwise. And I will say this again for those in the back, a patient who is capable of bearing children who is presenting with severe abdominal pain and is hemodynamically unstable or is toxic appearing is a ruptured ectopic pregnancy until proven otherwise. There are very few alternative diagnoses that present with abdominal pain and hemodynamic instability in a person of childbearing age. Now, importantly, these patients get the full workup up front. So, two large bore IVs, a CBC, a CMP, I'll usually get a lactate, I'll get a serum quantitative beta HCG, an RH typing, a type and screen, and coags. Perhaps most importantly, after the patient has adequate IV access, my first action is to perform a bedside fast exam. If I see free fluid in the peritoneum or in the pelvis, I'm calling OB even before a pregnancy test is back. They likely won't take this patient to the OR without a pregnancy test, but this will help get the ball rolling. And that's my general initial approach. Now, let's talk about some of the details for the workup of ectopic pregnancy. And specifically, I want to cover a couple of ASEP clinical policies on this topic as well. So let's start out by talking about what is known as the discriminatory zone. This zone refers to the threshold beta HCG level, which in theory, an intrauterine pregnancy should be able to be visualized on transvaginal ultrasound. Most places cite somewhere between a level of 1000 and 2000, most often 1500 as the discriminatory zone. That is, if the beta-HCG is above 1,500, an intrauterine pregnancy should be able to be visualized in transvaginal ultrasound. So what does this really mean? It means that if a beta-HCG is under the discriminatory zone of 1,500 and there is no definitive intrauterine pregnancy visualized, this may either represent an early intrauterine pregnancy or it may represent an ectopic pregnancy. Generally, these patients need outpatient serial quantitative beta-HCG testing, usually every 48 hours, until their levels are above the discriminatory zone. After their serum HCG level passes the discriminatory zone, they are brought back in for a repeat transvaginal ultrasound. 
However, if the beta HCG is above the discriminatory zone of 1500 and there is no definitive intrauterine pregnancy visualized, this is very concerning for an ectopic pregnancy and OB should be consulted. Now that we're all speaking the same language, let's ask ourselves a couple questions. Let's say we have a patient and they present it with either abdominal pain or vaginal bleeding and incidentally is found to be pregnant. Now what? So importantly, it is a level B ASEP clinical policy that the ED physician should obtain a transvaginal ultrasound in every clinically stable pregnant patient who presents to the ED with either abdominal pain or vaginal bleeding, even if the quantitative beta HCG is under the discriminatory zone. So every pregnant patient who has abdominal pain or vaginal bleeding needs a transvaginal ultrasound in the ED. I just want to highlight the qualifier on that policy. That is, it only applies to the presence of either abdominal pain or vaginal bleeding. Because of that qualifier, not every pregnant patient in the ED requires a transvaginal ultrasound, only the ones who are having abdominal pain or vaginal bleeding. So because our stable pregnant patient is complaining of abdominal pain and vaginal bleeding, we went ahead and got the transvaginal ultrasound. It was read by radiology as indeterminate, meaning no definitive intrauterine pregnancy was visualized. There is another level B ASEP clinical policy on this situation. It states that in a patient with an indeterminate transvaginal ultrasound result, you cannot use the serum beta HCG result to exclude the diagnosis of an ectopic pregnancy. Along similar lines, there is a level C ASEP clinical policy that states in all patients with an indeterminate transvaginal ultrasound result, you must either obtain specialty consultation or arrange close outpatient follow-up for the patient. So let's unpack this a little bit. In a patient with an indeterminate transvaginal ultrasound result, you cannot use the serum beta HCG value to exclude the diagnosis of ectopic pregnancy. What ASEP is trying to say here is that you can't definitively say, this is just an early pregnancy, you'll be fine. Ectopic is still on the differential. Simple enough, right? Nope. There's something much more scary and hidden deep within this clinical policy that will mess with your head. You ever hear the saying, practicing emergency medicine is like walking around in a minefield with clown shoes? Because this is a perfect example of that. So there are numerous case reports in both the OB and the ED literature of ruptured ectopic pregnancies presenting with negative urine pregnancy tests and even very low or even negative serum beta HCG testing. This is terrifying. These cases are what nightmares are made out of, guys. Come on, a negative pregnancy test, but a ruptured ectopic? So these cases are one of the reasons why I will sometimes get OB involved without the result of a pregnancy test if the patient clinically appears like they're having a ruptured ectopic pregnancy. And to end this episode, I just wanted to share a couple pearls regarding ectopic pregnancies. So number one, ROGAM, ACOG, 
which is the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, recommends giving Rogam to all Rh-negative women who are diagnosed with an ectopic pregnancy, regardless of the presence of current vaginal bleeding, whereas ASEP does not recommend for or against Rogam in the setting of ectopic pregnancy. Number two, heterotopic pregnancy. A heterotopic pregnancy is a pregnancy that has multiple gestations with at least one gestation located intrauterine and at least one gestation located extrauterine, aka ectopic. I swear to God, these were literally designed with the sole purpose of screwing over ED docs and OBGYNs as all rules go out the window when dealing with one of these. The good news is, in unassisted conception, the incidence of heterotopic pregnancy is about one out of every 30,000 pregnancies, so pretty rare. However, when any type of assisted reproductive technology is used during conception, the incidence of heterotopic pregnancy increases almost tenfold, from one in 30,000 to about one in 3,900. But wait, it gets worse. In vitro fertilization is a type of assisted reproductive technology that I'm sure most of you have heard of. In vitro fertilization results in the highest risk of heterotopic pregnancy. Approximately one out of every 100 pregnancies that use IVF result in a heterotopic pregnancy. Therefore, in patients who have received any type of assisted reproductive technology, especially IVF, please keep heterotopic pregnancy in the back of your mind. And that's all I have for you today, guys. So let's summarize this episode into six important points real quick. Number one, you should consider ectopic pregnancy in every patient who's capable of bearing children. Number two, if a patient capable of bearing children presents with severe abdominal pain or vaginal bleeding, and is either hemodynamically unstable or very ill-appearing. This is a ruptured ectopic pregnancy until proven otherwise, and I would recommend performing an immediate bedside fast exam to look for the presence of free fluid in the perineum or in the pelvis. Number three, remember that the discriminatory zone for transvaginal ultrasound is somewhere between 1,000 and 2,000, typically 1,500. Number four, don't forget the three ASEP clinical policies on this topic. And just to remind you, let's go through them one more time. It is a level B ASEP clinical policy to obtain a transvaginal ultrasound in every stable pregnant patient who is presenting with either abdominal pain or vaginal bleeding, regardless of their serum beta HCG level. The second one is also a level B ASEP clinical policy, and it states that in patients with an indeterminate transvaginal ultrasound result, meaning not a definitive intrauterine pregnancy, you cannot use serum beta HCG levels to rule out the presence of ectopic pregnancies. And the third one, which is a level C ASEP clinical policy, is to obtain specialty consultation or arrange close outpatient follow-up in all patients who have an indeterminate transvaginal ultrasound result. Number five, although this is not an ASEP recommendation, ACOG recommends ROGAM for all RH-negative women who are diagnosed with an ectopic pregnancy. And number six, 
do not forget to consider heterotopic pregnancy, especially if in vitro fertilization was used to help conceive. Thanks everyone for listening. I really mean it when I say that I love hearing from you guys. So feel free to reach out to me. My email is mike, that's M-I-K-E, at emclerkship.com. I'm happy to answer any questions you have about this episode, about prior episodes, about emergency medicine, or even if you just want to shoot the shit if you need somebody to talk to. Until next month, keep working hard, keep studying, and be sure to enjoy your shift.